You are listening to Meet the Thriller Author, the podcast where I interview writers of mysteries, thrillers, and suspense books. I am your host, Alan Peterson, and this is episode number 98. In this episode of the podcast, we'll be meeting Andrew Main, a best-selling novelist and magician. Andrew is an Edgar-nominated author, Thriller Award finalist, star of Shark Week, and A&E's television's Don't Trust Andrew Main. His latest novel, The Girl Beneath the Sea, is a number one bestseller on Amazon. Had a great time talking to Andrew about uh, writing his uh, novels, his uh, writing process, uh, swimming with sharks, uh, doing magic, and a whole lot more. So stay tuned for that interview coming up. Before we get to the interview, I want to let you know about Masterclass. Go to thrillingreads.com forward slash masterclass and get access to over 80 instructors with more than 16,000 minutes of content. You can learn anytime, anywhere at your own pace. You can watch thousands of lessons from best as they share their stories, skills, shortcuts, failures, and successes, including best-selling thriller and mystery writers David Baldacci, Dan Brown, and James Patterson. So learn from the best over at thrillingreads.com forward slash masterclass. That is my affiliate link, so you can learn from the best while supporting this podcast. Coming right up, my interview with Andrew Main. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to uh, the podcast. Thank you for doing this interview. Hey, thanks for having me, Alan. The uh, the Girl Beneath the Sea is out today. Uh, we're recording this on uh, May 1st, and I just uh, took a look. It's already the top of the charts on Amazon, so it uh, uh, looks like it's an outstanding book launch. Congrats. Thank you very, very much. Um, I'm very grateful to work with a great team, so, you know, that helps. started reading it a couple of days ago, and uh, what a fantastic opening of that uh, that you have on that uh, on that book. Can you tell us a little bit then about uh, about Sloan McPherson and, uh, and this book? Yeah, so The Girl Beneath the Sea is about a woman who's basically kind of a part-time police diver in Florida, where she'll work on evidence recovery, sometimes body retrieval, which is a real thing. Sometimes police departments will either contract out with other divers or sometimes they have their own divers at work within the department doing that. And I grew up in South Florida and you know, my father was in law enforcement, my brother's law enforcement. And, you know, I periodically hear stories about how, you know, they would have recovery divers work on some of their cases. And I always thought it's very, just an interesting sort of thing, particularly in a place like Florida where there's so much stuff underwater. And Having grown up there and written some other thriller mysteries, I said, you know, it'd be fun to just write a story and come up with a character that's of Florida and of that kind of world, but also make them very much uh, a Florida sort of story. And that, you know, Sloan comes from a family that was involved in doing treasure hunting, et cetera, probably earlier on, maybe a bit of smuggling and maybe not so uh, further back as we find out in the case of her story and give her sort of a complicated family, which she loves, but have her try to figure out her own path as she gets pulled into a bigger world of complications and conflicts. That's interesting about your, you have family with a law enforcement uh, uh, background. Any of those cases uh, working into your story here, or is that the, how, how do you come up with the idea? Uh, yeah, I, my father was uh, with the Treasury Department, specifically with the ATF hmm. for uh, his career. And while he did that, he he did everything from working as going after moonshiners as a revenuer. He was a sky marshal back in like the 70s. He was in the national response team where if there was a bombing somewhere, he'd be part of the team that would fly across the country to go respond to that. Then he got involved when we moved to South Florida. He was part of one of the big uh, task force that was put together between these different agencies to go after tra- you know, drug trafficking. So my dad had this this kind of amazing career where dinner table conversation we find out about how you know the right hand man to some 
dictator in some country was at fault in some drug operation and how they were going after this person to, you know, they, you know, a court case they had where they'd gone after this person and got a witness and stuff. And so that was normal for me growing up was talks about subpoenas and search warrants and, you know, all this kind of thing. And I didn't realize that's not normal, you know, so that certainly played into a lot of my, my, uh, storytelling and then when i started writing a novel specifically set in south florida you know part of it was certainly shaped by being a kid you know the child of a law enforcement officer in the 1980s going through that and i must say too i've been a big fan of uh, shark week for decades you know i don't know how long that show has been going on <laughs> so i was excited to see that you like were hosting years, another, incredible, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah and, and you hosted like a show called, one of the shows called ghost diver so how cool was that can you tell us a little bit about that yeah so i i had this sort of crazy idea of what it would be like to try to fool great white sharks because obviously and i have a background in magic and illusion i you know i had a tv show i did magic on a and e and i used to create magic before for like penn and teller and david blaine and like working with david copperfield and i i kind of said you know i want to do something different with that and i thought using what we understand about deception and misdirection would it work in the animal kingdom would it work with great white sharks which sounded, you know, kind of like a really cool theoretical abstract sort of idea, which led to me being in the Isle of Jaws, 60 feet underwater, surrounded by great white sharks with no cage. What goes through your mind when you're doing that? Are you like, any regrets? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things where, I mean, the, the, the honest truth is like, I have this idea of like, oh, I think, I think I have some ideas that might work because, you know, I've you know, learned a little bit like the way sharks sense things and stuff like I might be able to do this to fool or camouflage myself through sharks. And that was the purpose of ghost divers. I built the suit that would allow me to sort of theoretically interact with great whites and not have them pay attention to me, sort of have them be kind of invisible to them. And, you know, it starts off with this idea of like, oh, I'll, you know, I'll tell people, you know, some people I know at Discovery Channel, I'll just throw this out there like, oh, here's a crazy idea. They'll say no. And then I get to tell my friends and everybody like, yeah, I have this really cool idea, but it was just too extreme for them. Why would Discovery Channel told them about this? And they're like, hey, we love it. Can you pull it off? And now I'm like, uh, sure. <laughs> and, you know, one thing leads to another. And you're, you know, you, we, I, I remember I get to, I did a lot of training and everything else like that for it. And I get into the little submersible. And Andy Casagrande, who is, uh, he, he's a regular at Shark Week. He's a camera guy. He's an adventure, amazing guy. So he's the, he's the, you know, the guy who's going to be filming this and, you know, piloting this thing down to the bottom of the ocean floor and we get to the bottom and we've got the little radio comms you know and, and andy gets on the radio and he opens up the side door and there are great white sharks all around us all around us and he's like and we have to do the test first without the suit just me in a regular you know scuba diving outfit and a, a plastic shield and, and he's like so do you want to get out <laughs> and it's like well no but I guess we're here, so I might as well. And uh, it was an amazing experience. I'm terrified of sharks. Absolutely terrified. I can scare myself out of a speed pool if I hear a splash. But for some reason, at that point right there, you know, once you see the sharks, once they're in front of you, you kind of accept things. And then you just sort of proceed and you're constantly alert and vigil because they – they would come in, swim around, swim around, wait for you not to look, and then they, they, they're ambush predators, that, which means they sneak up behind you. So if you're not constantly looking in their direction, and they're, and that was one of the things I didn't know in the beginning was like, no, yeah, sharks can tell when you're looking at them. And I'm like, well, yeah, I guess fish have eyes, so that would make sense. And so you have to turn, you know, always be looking, and 
when you get up to like 14, 15 sharks, it's hard to keep track of them. And if you do a count and you realize you're short one shark, <laughs> you turn around right away because that great white is coming in to bump you to see if you're going to put up a fight. Wow. Oh, so that's why they're always circling when you see that. I didn't realize that they're always trying to figure out how to ambush you. <laughs> that's... Well, it's, it's, it, they're, they're very efficient predators. They, they don't like to take risks if they don't have to. You know, they've been around for a long time. You know, they're, they're the apex predator for a couple reasons. One is that they don't take risks so they don't have to. And so they will, you know, something like me in the water, a diver, they're like, what is that? Is that worth it or not? And often when people get attacked by sharks, we have a very low, you know, ratio of muscle and fat compared to bone. So we're not their ideal thing to eat. Like they, they really like prefer not to because it's a lot of effort to do that. But sharks, one of the sense organs they have is their teeth. And in order to tell if something is worth eating, they bite it. And the problem is, is if you get a shark bite to see if it's you're worth eating, it's fatal for you. Oh, yikes. Yeah, so that's why they sometimes take a bite. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay, so they're like kind of seeing if they're going to like yeah. it and they don't, but it's too late for you. <laughs> exactly. They're like, oh, yeah, no, nah, I don't nah, spit that arm out. Anyhow, <laughs> let me go find some. And you're, you know, and that's that's why, you know, that could be scary. But you'll sometimes, though, and that's particularly great whites. Other sharks cannot, some aren't so picky and stuff. And if things, you know, things are, some other sharks can be more aggressive and whatnot. But generally speaking, like great whites, stuff, they were amazing. Absolutely, absolutely amazing. If they had wanted to kill me, I would not be here. They are intelligent. They have their own personalities. And it's just it, to be there close to this thing that I was terrified of and to see them in the world of the place they belong and I do not was an incredible experience and just gave me such a deeper appreciation for them and, and understanding how important shark conservation is. Yeah, and I noticed on your website that you had this um, a ghost diver uh, VR experience that you created. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That sounds that's kind of cool. <laughs> Yeah, so when I was talking to people like Andy, Andy Casagrande and some others about uh, Dr. Neil Hammerschlag, who uh, University of Miami, who was helpful in understanding how sharks hunt, I wanted to prepare myself for that because you don't get a lot of practice to be around sharks. And so what I did is I built a virtual reality experience where I would put sharks in there. So you put on your VR headset. And I gave them sort of a very rudimentary kind of like an AI kind of logic that sort of made them behave in a way that I was told that sharks would, the great whites would, so that you would be underwater. And basically what you had was a shield to defend yourself and then your attention. If you looked at a great white shark, as I was told, then they would tend to stay away. If you didn't pay attention to them a long enough time, then they would try to sort of circle around and come at you. So I built this VR experience to practice doing this, and it was terrifying. You know, it was absolutely terrifying because I, you know, I would just be in there and all of a sudden you see I had pretty realistic sharks in there. And anybody who's got like an Oculus Quest or anything that can, you know, VR can actually play with this. I think it's ghostdiver.xyz. I think the, the site's still running. You can load it through a web browser. For me, it was just it's scary, particularly when you go into night mode and all you can see is with your flashlight. Yeah, that might be the only way that I would uh, swim with the sharks would be in a virtual, virtual way. <laughs> you know, I, I felt the same way, but, you know... <laughs> Thing happens is you you start talking and then you start thinking about it. And the next thing you know, you're you're underwater and first you're next to a tiger shark that's trying to push you out of the way, and then you're around a bunch of great whites that you know you're having to bump and touch things that you never wanted to touch. So obviously you have a lot of experience going up in Florida. You have a lot of diving experience. Is that is that why when uh, you're uh, coming up with the uh, concept for uh, Sloan, you wanted her to be a diver as well? Yeah, I Florida is interesting because you have 
you have canals. So I, I grew up living on a canal, which, you know, we had a boat in the backyard and, you know, we'd be sometimes hopping out boats, sometimes like, go to, let's go to the Bahamas on our boat. You know, and we had a neighborhood that was very active like that. And I lived in, you know, these waterways. And so as kids, we'd go out there, hide just like, you know, kneeboarding out there, swimming in canals, and you'd see gators and stuff. You got used to it. And then you might, you know, venture out a little bit more into some of the intercoastal stuff and then the oceans. And in the oceans, you've got a lot of wonderful, wonderful scuba diving out there and you know, snorkeling. And so having done so much of that was something that I just figured, yeah, this should be a neat thing to put into my books. Do you still do magic? I just did a talk day before yesterday for a member of the Magic Castle, which is a magic club in L.A. So I did a talk on Zoom for the junior members, a bunch of this, these kids that are members of the Magic Castle. So I did a talk for that for two hours of them. And I've done some done some stuff like that. You know, I did like a you know live presentation like before. And as far as performing, kind of the Discovery Channel thing was sort of the direction that was most interesting to me is like, let me take the technical background of this and look for ways to apply it forward. But other than that, not not terribly active. And did you always uh, wanted to be a writer? Uh, how long has that been a uh, passion for you? Oh, yeah. I think that, you know, I was like, like 10 years old or something when I was, we lived in, this was right before we moved to Florida. We lived in Oregon, Portland, Oregon, and we had a, had a basement downstairs. We had a guest room. And my parents stored stuff in the closet. And I opened up the closet once, and there's this, one of those orange orange boxes, you know, those like I think you've seen those like big you know, those boxes, the cardboard boxes, and I pulled this thing down there to see what was in there because I was that nosy of a kid, and it was filled with my dad's old science fiction books, you know, Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, Arthur C. Clarke, you know, and I, and the covers were amazing. I looked at these covers, and it was so much cooler than the stuff I was having to read in school, and I remember taking probably like a short story collection or something like that, and just falling in love with it and getting into science fiction and just making my way through all of those books. And I think that I gravitated at that point, probably to Isaac Asimov. And I thought that I looked at how prolific he was as a writer. And I thought that that would be cool one day to have written as many books as he had, which I realized now is a complete impossibility for myself, but I was also interested in magic. And so, you know, magic and science were kind of like my big influences. So by the time I got to high school, I would write for fun. I was a bit of a creative writer, but I didn't see that writing was going to be a path that I was going to follow probably until much later in life. And then much later in life, I remember thinking one day, you know, I've always wanted to write. Maybe I should do that now instead of waiting. And then I started, I started taking it seriously. It was eight years ago where I decided to just sit down and start writing my first novel. I was nine years ago, start writing my first novellas and novels. And then said, I'm going to just get take this as seriously as I can. And I spent a year writing as much as I could. I did like a million words in a year. Wow. I would write a book. Then I would analyze writing. I'd read, I'd read a book on writing. I'd go back and write another book. And so I probably wrote probably like six novels, six, like maybe five novels, five novellas in that period of time, just to try to just understand as much as I could in a compressed period of time. And how many books have you published so far? Published? All right. <laughs> I know you have the Naturalist book uh, series, right? That's one of them. Yeah, the Naturalist series. So the Naturalist series, there's four in that series so far. I did three Jessica Blackwoods, which was seven. So then we have The Girl Went to the Sea, which is eight. And then I did The Orbital Station Breaker, which was ten. And then I did like Public Enemy Zero was my first novel. Probably published like 14 or 15 books, you know, novels. And then... 
it, unpublished, I have easily twice as many just sitting in a box somewhere. Oh, wow. Do you ever go back to revisit those? <laughs> um, sometimes, no. Sometimes, and, and these were unpublished things I never even submitted. These were just things that I just wrote to say, once I taught myself just how to sit down and write, you know, and turn a book out in a week or so, you know, just get the thing onto paper, I realized that that's a thing I should probably do is just, just to work on character, to work on storytelling, just get in the habit of just writing and not worry about outcome. And I don't really revisit my stuff. I kind of just sort of think I take the thing from it because at the end of it, I have like a million things. Oh, I wish I did this. I wish I did this. I wish I did that. So I kind of just, and it's probably a flaw with me. I just sort of like to move forward and I don't like to look back. So what, so what is your writing process from start to finish for when you start a new book? Because a million words a year is incredible. <laughs> well, I don't do a million words a year now. That was like my first, uh, I probably quarter million now. So what, you know, I do is that for me, it generally starts to try to come up with a good character. And if I have the character and let's say I'm writing another book in a series, then obviously you want to figure out what's going to be a conflict that is going. And I, I prefer to use when I start off the conflict instead of plot, because conflict implies the thing that changes, what they have to change or what they have to adapt to. It just is sort of in my own sort of internal way of thinking about it. And then I might think about a theme and I'll write a vision statement for a book. And that is, I want this to happen in this story. I want my character to go through this journey here. I want to have maybe, uh, you know, these are the dramatic elements I want to have happen. I try to kind of bullet point those things because as writers, you know, we get often lost along the way and we maybe we pursue other things in the middle of a book, but then we feel that maybe it's not quite where it wants it to be. And then you get to the end of it and you have that uncertainty. But if I have a mission statement, and I hit a couple of the critical points that I know I need to do, and I follow my outline, even if I get to the end of the book and I'm really uncertain about it, generally the book is pretty well received. And so I know that's a really good way for me to counteract whatever self-doubt I have, is to say at the beginning, this is what I need to do, and if I get to the end of it and go like, look at that list, did I do what I needed to do? I'm like, yeah, I think I did, then I feel good. The software program that you used to write, I always like to ask this to uh, my guests, is it like Word or something else? When I talk about writing, I use a few different tools, and... By the time I sit down to write, I've already done a lot of little note-taking. I've got an outline, a chapter-by-chapter outline that's pretty specific about the conflicts of each chapter. And I may have taken photos on my phone and used stuff. I may have used Google Maps to go look at locations and stuff. Like, I just had to do that, you know, middle of writing a book right now, and I had to stop and pull up Google Maps and stuff because I'm like, I kind of know a bit about this location, but let me pull it up there. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I'm going to use that. I use my note app on my phone for a lot of little parts of writing. So I think those tools are just as important as the actual you know, word processor. But for the actual writing itself, I'm a big fan of Scrivener. I started using Word, which I was not – Word to me is not a thing that ideal for writing long-form content. I did a thing where I tried for a while using like Google Docs, which was neat because it was easier to do collaborative because I could just let people come in and like edit. But Google Docs does not like really long documents. And then I went to Scrivener, and I tried a Scrivener for one or two books. And then but I said, you know, the learning curve's kind of high here. Let me go back to writing in Word or something else. And I did that, and it was miserable. And then I went back into Scrivener, and I have it left. So Scrivener, I'm a big fan of that. And for people who are looking to deliver, like, their own, produce their own eBooks or their own, you know, like, if you want to do self-published stuff, which is how I got my start, and I still like to do from time to time, there's a great program for the Mac called Vellum. If you go to vellum.pub, V-E-L-L-U-M.pub, 
it will produce really nice looking ebooks and print versions of your books. Oh yeah, I use Vellum. It's a, it's a fantastic software. So yes, oh, okay. So what's the difference now? Because now you're working with uh, Thomas and Mercer. Um, any differences between when you like, you're like doing it on your own versus now working with a publishing house? Yeah, I've worked with a few different publishers in the past, and I think that every every publisher sort of has probably their strengths and what they're good at. You know, and, and you know, early on I was with Harper Collins, and I had a wonderful editor there, Hannah Woods who taught me a lot about just, it, it, it was great because that was coming to sort of this new author, very new author and working with somebody like her who was, she was a young person too, but she just knew knew how to really craft, help an author sort of make the best version of what they could do. That was helpful. And that was one of the things I really took from that experience there was just having that there. Working with Thomas and Mercer has been fantastic because my editor there, Liz Pearson, is great. She's very good at me sort of laying out, this is what I want to do. We bring in some really good developmental editors. I've had Ed Stackler, who's worked with me in the last several books, and it's been a wonderful fit. He he knows the right way to manage a writer's ego. <laughs> in the past, I've had some editors who are like, like I'm like, I don't think they realize how condescending they're being. <laughs> you know, just tell me you don't like this thing. Don't spend this, you know, don't don't put all this weird faint praise here thinking that I'm going, oh, okay. I'm like, just tell me it doesn't work. That's been a great experience there. The whole team there has been has been wonderful. And one of the things is that I I made my start as when ebooks took off. And so I'm used to sort of e-publishing and also the idea and, and it's a faster sort of cycle in some ways in that if I want to change the cover of a book, I can change the cover of a book because I'm not thinking that the, that the canonical version of my book is the print version. If I want to change the description of my book as I understand how people have been reading and responding to it, I can go in and go in and do that. I understand that if you're selling books through phones and tablets, when that cover shrunk down to the size of a postage stamp, you have to be able to look at that and understand what it is. Traditional publishers not always think that way. And you know, they have like they have their own strengths to what they do. And I would say that I've had a great experience at Thompson Mercer because I think that we're very there, this publishing company's developed in that world. I'm a writer that started for that period of time. And so uh, it, it's very easy for them to go, let's go do this. I'm like, yes, that makes complete sense to me. Let's do this. Yeah, the uh, cover for The uh, Girl Beneath the Seas is, uh, is really awesome, really, really catchy. Yeah, they, and that's been uh, one of the little things I appreciate is how involved I've been able to be in the process there. You know, sometimes you go to publishers and they're kind of like, we're going to tell you how it is. You can tell us you don't like it, but you better like it. And from the first cover they did for the cover for The Naturalist, which was uh, M.S. Corley's, the cover illustrator who did that, which was just a fantastic, this was this this fur with the letters in were woven between there. And that got, uh, you know, it was picked as like one of the top 10 covers of the year, et cetera. And all the way through there, they put a lot of attention to that. And so the girl we need to see, they showed me the cover and with the colors. And those were some of my favorite color schemes and stuff. I was just very, very thrilled. And, you know, I had my little, oh, let's try this. Let's try that. And my agent's like, make his name bigger. And you know, I'm like, I like to hear that. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I also noticed that you're a, a podcaster. I saw on your website, you, tell, you have the Weird Things podcast, a couple other podcasts. That's uh, pretty neat. How, how how do you enjoy that? Oh, I love that. I've been doing that podcast now for 15 years. And then, you know, I started getting involved before we had the term podcasting. I used to be involved in science education, critical thinking, communication, and, you know, back when we have to go use things like, uh, remember, like real networks and whatever kind of streaming mm -hmm. stuff. So I've always been involved in that, and I, I've, I've loved that because I like the idea that not every medium has to be a mass medium. 
you know, some mediums can be kind of a more focused medium. And so doing the Weird Things podcast was great because I had come from the world of magic and, and also having written books for magicians. And I had an audience of, let's say, magicians who liked my content, but I wanted to reach out to a larger audience. So Weird Things was a great stepping stone, which eventually led to me building an audience as an author. And, you know, I've had a lot of people that have been kind of been along that journey, you know, that, that started reading, like, when I was publishing magic books as, you know, as a 20-year-old kid, they were like, these are ideas I've had. I've had people who followed all along the way, and other people have come along through there. But uh, it's been a wonderful experience, and I think that I'm very, very lucky to have had an audience that's, when I wanted to say, hey, check out my books, do this, that came from my Weird Things audience. That came from the audience of people who listen to that podcast. So what's uh, next for you and uh, Sloan McPherson? I see there's a second book that's coming out. Yeah, Black Coral, which comes out. i got to check the pub date on that. <laughs> um, and I think February. Uh, so Black Coral is going to be kind of the next, you know, where does she go? Uh, assuming she survives the first book. It could be a prequel, everybody. Who knows? Um <laughs> Where does she go? You know, she's she's learned, you know, she's pulled into the world of more taking law enforcement more seriously. What's next for her? What's next for her as a person and where she's going at that? So that's going to be the next book for Sloan McPherson. And then I have my my series, The Naturalist, which stars Theo Cray, who's this computational biologist who ends up hunting serial killers. I have a book with him coming out next year where he's going to pair up with my Jessica Blackwood character, which is from my Angel Killer series, where she's a woman in the FBI who comes from a family of stage magicians. And so I've got that book coming out, too, which is going to be a fun. It's the first time I'm able to take two of my characters from different series and put them together and kind of shift between points of view and see how they interact. Oh, well, yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Or it could be a disaster. We'll <laughs> yeah, well, after swimming with sharks, though, for, you know. <laughs> yeah, failure has a different threshold for me now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Andrew, before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests because I have a writers who are listening to this uh, podcast any advice uh, for writers out there yeah i mean and i feel i feel okay first i feel silly giving advice because i'm still figuring things out let me clear let me that <laughs> very very clear and i'm not sitting here with my pipe in my reading room and like let me tell everybody the secrets to writing i don't i don't have a clue but i can tell you what what's changed me and helped me on on the broad sort of thing is you don't need other people's approval you don't need publishers to tell you that you're good you don't need that. That is not what makes you a writer. You're a writer because you write. And your audience doesn't have to be everybody. You could write in a very narrow niche and you can self-publish and you can have a wonderfully rewarding experience. When I started writing, my plan was just to be self-published because I thought I saw that it was growing and I had really good economic success as a self-published author. It was one of the things that worked out really well. And I started working with publishers because it's, you know, it's another outlet to do it. But all the time I'll talk to writers like, ah, oh, I want to do this, but I want to find a publisher. I want to do this. And I'm like, that's great. If that's your dream, to me, that's a silly dream. My dream is to have people reading my books and I want the shortest path between, you know, writing a book and that is possible putting out quality material, of course. So don't wait for permission. Don't care what other people think. I mean, you still get this sort of thing. Like, again, I started to sell, and now I've worked with a number of publishers and I'm just as proud of my self-published books as I am of my published ones. And I, I'd love for people to get into their heads, the understanding of like, this is 2020. A printing press is a computer. A publisher is just a name. And there are great publishers, and they're so-so publishers. There are publishers that understand the world we're in, and there are publishers that don't. But most of all, what matters is just creative people doing what they do best. And you could put out a self-published book and work with some of the same people that a publisher would have you work with. And 
And I have a wonderful publisher and I've, it's been a great experience for me. But if I couldn't have that experience, I'd still be writing and still be doing stuff regardless. Don't wait for permission. Don't wait for approval. Some of the best success stories we've heard now have been books that traditional publishers have turned down. You know, my favorite example is, you know, I don't know how powerful it is, but that, you know, Harry Potter got turned down 40 times, mm -hmm. 40 times. Okay. 40 publishers looked at this book and said, man, don't think it has much potential. <laughs> and it, it's going to be more complicated than that because, you know, it wouldn't maybe would have been the, the hit that it was if it had taken a different route. But that's the most successful children's book of all time. One of the most successful film franchises of all time was a book that 40 people, 40 professionals paid to find things that would make money said they did not see the potential in it. So that's the world we go into as writers is that we're putting our stuff in front of people that publishers and editors have to make choices. And it's not that they, it's not necessarily that they said it was bad. It's just that they had only so many opportunities to publish or put things out there and they had to say no. And that means having to say no to wonderful things. So, you know, I talk to my editors and there's stuff that they love. Like, I wish I could have done this, but I could only do this many books this year. There's this other thing I love, this writer I love. And they have to make these choices. They're doing the best they can do, but the industry the way it is means that great stuff is going to be overlooked, but because of self-publishing. J.K. Rowling had written that book today. I think after the third or fourth no, she would have self-published. Yeah, that's great. That's great advice. Yeah, a lot of opportunities now. Um, so that's, uh, I love hearing that. <laughs> and the best place for readers to find you uh, probably be your website, andrewmain.com. Yeah, andrewmain, M-A-Y-N-E.com. Yeah, all right, Andrew. Thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, our chat. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Meet the Thriller Author podcast. Be sure to visit thrillerauthors.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover great thrilling reads. If you enjoy the podcast, I'd love for you to subscribe, uh, rate, and give a review uh, to it, wherever it is that you're listening to this uh, podcast, be it uh, iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, uh, wherever it is that you're uh, listening to this right now, I would appreciate it. And uh, please do check out my own thriller novels over at my website at alanpeterson.com. Until next time.